And we're back. Thanks for joining us again, everyone. This is Sports Medicine Resident Review. This is our fun, quick test review. I'm Dr. Michael Bova, rising PGY2. And I'm Dr. Sapp, one of the rising chief residents in PMNR, both of us at the University of Virginia. This week's topic on the show, we have the wrist, but it's actually a special episode. We're going to call it Grand Rounds because we have a colleague joining us. Today we have Dr. Kevin Machino joining us, one of the rising PGY4s at the University of Chicago. Dr. Kevin Machino, thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Uh, thank you guys for having me today, and, and please feel free to call me Kevin uh, throughout the rest of the, the podcast if you'd like. Uh, but like Glenn said, uh, I'm Kevin Machino, one of the current uh, PMNR residents at Schwab Rehab, uh, affiliated with the University of Chicago. And I've been doing well, uh, considering uh, everything that's going on right now, I've been trying to stay positive. Um, and I have to say, it's amazing what you guys have been able to create with this podcast. And when Glenn first told me about it, I knew I had to jump in on it. And I just really love what you guys have been doing. I'm happy to be a part of it. Um, how have you guys been? Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, doing okay. Yeah, I'm uh, just finishing up Gen Med uh, for my intern year. So now it's just all smooth sailing onto PMNR for uh, the rest of my residency. It's kind of exciting. Yeah, how about you, Glenn? What have you been up to? Uh, starting up EMG clinic. Yeah, with everything uh, restarting, you know, clinics are opening, so we're starting in a few patients rolling in. So, yep, learning about EMGs. That's awesome. How about you, Kevin? What have you been up to? So, same, same. Uh, we, I, we actually spoke earlier, but um, our EMG clinic just recently opened up about um, a couple weeks ago as well. So, we're slowly getting our, our um, patients coming in. Um, so, we've been starting that. We also opened up a post-COVID unit at our facility. So uh, patients who have recovered, who've had COVID, recovered, and still are in need of rehab um, are coming to our unit now and and getting that, the the rehab that they need. So it's it's pretty remarkable uh, kind of seeing uh, everything that the patients have been going through and just kind of being able to see them through back to, to getting them safely home. That's fantastic. It's really great that you have that program running. Yeah. So I got a couple questions for you. I mean, this is the first time I've ever meeting you. So uh, as one uh, person interested in sports medicine to another, um, why did you decide to apply for sports medicine fellowship? Yeah, uh, good question. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, I don't have that classic story of like sustaining a sports injury when I was a little kid, uh, leading me to wanting to be a sports doc or anything like that. Uh, but I've always been kind of fascinated with the, the musculoskeletal system since medical school, which is part of the reason why I went into rehab medicine. And during these past several years in residency, I've been able to really explore the field further. And I found that I've really enjoyed uh, providing sideline coverage for different uh, sporting events like high school football games, big mass events like the Chicago Marathon. And it's really from those experiences that I found that I wanted to spend my career playing a role in helping people stay active and healthy. Um, and, and live their uh, physically active life. Um, what about what about you guys? Yeah, I mean, I figure, you know, keeping people staying active and healthy was like one of the best parts of it. Back in undergrad, I studied exercise physiology. So learning early, you know, the benefits of people, you know, getting out there, um, being active, playing sports, um, you know, finding like the physiological benefits was like a huge thing for me that kind of got me interested and motivated. Um, I think in my story, it was kind of like figuring out what was the best way to help people. Um, you know, I've, yeah, luckily I've never had any injuries, actually, any sports injuries. I've given a lot of other people injuries, actually. <laughs> I've, like, given some people concussions in football, um, you know, 
torn some guy's hamstrings as well, just being a good defensive man. Well, I guess that's not being a good defensive man. No, that's a good defensive man right there. Thank that, you. That's, that's good stuff. <laughs> right. Thank you. Um, and so, yeah, I think medicine was just the best way to kind of give back, um, you know, team sports, individual sports, like CrossFit, um, just kind of like going through it all for me. I wanted to continue to participate and kind of help people with injuries. I guess give back to the community for all the people I've hurt in the past. <laughs> You're so kind. You're so empathetic, Glenn. <laughs> right. How about you, Bo? Um, so, uh, as uh, Kevin alluded to, um, that classic sports medicine injury story, um, I unfortunately have too many of those. Uh, one kind of recently, and maybe uh, maybe I'll share that on the podcast at some point. But, um, yeah, sports medicine, uh, the idea of, like, optimizing human performance. Those two things have always kind of go hand in hand with me. I loved working with athletes, like highly motivated individuals who just want to get better and they have a very goal-oriented end goal for um, for either their careers or once they finish their career, like just wanting to maintain like athletic performance going down the road. And then like over the the last year, it's just kind of evolved to include things like uh, benefits of like sauna and uh, various nutritional algorithms and learning about mTOR and all of this other stuff that I just find absolutely fascinating. So, um, sports medicine just keeps becoming that uh, that area that has like endless possibilities in my mind. So, yeah. Since we're talking about sports medicine and we're in the middle of a COVID uh, pandemic, uh, one of the things we're all lacking right now is gyms. Um, so, what have you been doing, Kevin, to stay active, stay healthy? keep from going insane <laughs> yeah no I, I i feel you um yeah i used to play basketball and regularly go to the gym like you were saying but ever since this pandemic started uh we've all had to kind of switch gears and make some adjustments um so i've been trying to kind of stay maintain both my physical health and mental health i've been doing some running some body weight exercises at home um, and then I always try to, to make a conscious effort to, like, like I uh, said before, maintain my mental health because that's just as important during this time, um, especially being residents kind of um, going through what we're going through as well. Um, so I, I try meditating twice a day, once in the morning, once at night, um, using an app on my phone. And really that's kind of been how I've been trying to stay both active and motivated at the same time. Um, but I'm curious to hear what, what you guys have been also doing out there too. For me, <laughs> for me, um, played against sports has actually been a really awesome resource. Um, I recently bought a rowing machine, uh, for my apartment. And so, yeah, getting on the rowing machine is pretty good, like whole body workout, um, to get your heart rate up. Um, get some strength exercises in there as well Um, and then trying to you know find some good like yoga videos on YouTube there's actually there's so many so many resources online uh, free resources that you know you can search YouTube search Google Um, I feel like right now it's kind of like showing just kind of how far you know technology has come you know you can go online and find you know Peloton workouts different things like that Um, so yeah just trying to stay up to date with new technology, use YouTube as a resource and stuff, and go from there. Yeah, and uh, Kevin, you mentioned that you were doing some meditation with a meditation app. Yeah, I've found uh, that's probably the biggest change that I've been able to implement over um, this past year has been uh, just doing meditation. Um, I've 
find that it's been uh, exceptionally beneficial uh, for my mental health. Um, just being able to be present with my patients, it's made a huge difference. Um, and kind of alluding to past injuries, that's kind of hampered me a little bit, but I've gotten in touch with uh, my inner core workouts lately. Just uh, realizing how difficult bird dogs are when you do them correctly. Um, that's, been, that's been just ridiculous. Um, so I put up a good sweat just doing that each day. Nice. All right. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and jump into the questions. A little bit different format this time, but we'll go ahead and just get into it. I think, Kevin, I think you have the first yeah. one. So the first question we have here is a 35-year-old diabetic female cyclist presents to your clinic with increasing right hand pain, paresthesias from the forearm to the first three digits, and grip weakness for six weeks. The symptoms wake her up at nighttime. A phalanx maneuver is positive and Tanel's sign is negative. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step? A. Obtain imaging of the cervical spine. B. Night splinting with hand brace. C. EMG or nerve conduction study of the right upper extremity. And, or D. Steroid injection of Guillaume's canal. The correct answer is B. We're thinking the diagnosis is here is carpal tunnel syndrome based on the question stem. So carpal tunnel syndrome clinically presents with paresthesias to the first three digits <clears throat> that are innervated by the median nerves that's being compressed as it passes through the carpal tunnel at the wrist. So provocative tests for the carpal tunnel syndrome are commonly performed um, are the, the phalanx test where you're bringing the dorsum of the patient's hands together and holding the wrist flexion for 30 to 60 seconds and those will tend to reproduce the symptoms if they're positive and Tunnell's test where it involves tapping the median nerve at the wrist also reproducing those um, uh, paresthesias or symptoms. Um, the question stem mentioned that the patient was a diabetic so diabetes, thyroid disorders, and pregnancy can predispose patients to entrapment neuropathy such as carpal tunnel syndrome and the reason why B is correct with, with the night splinting with the hand brace is because uh, the first line treatment for carpal tunnel is conservative management with splinting. Um, the reason why choice A, obtaining imaging of the cervical spine is uh, incorrect was uh, we're less likely thinking it's a radiculopathy process. The, uh, the question stem didn't mention having neck pain or, or any further weakness along the arm. So we won't necessarily first jump to um, imaging the C-spine. Answer C, the EMG nerve conduction study of the right upper extremity, it might sound correct at first because it is the gold standard for diagnosing carpal tunnel syndrome, but oftentimes we don't need to obtain one um, until conservative management failed. So uh, we can you know, get an EMG later on to confirm the diagnosis to pursue further alternative treatments, but really the first line will be the splinting of the, the, uh, the hand with a brace. And then the last answer choice, steroid injection of Guillaume's canal, is incorrect because Guillaume's canal is actually the ulnar tunnel of the wrist, so it affects mostly um, the distribution of the ulnar nerve, which affects digit five and uh, half of the ring finger. So um, that, those are the reasons why the other answer choices are, are incorrect, and the correct answer is night splinting with a hand brace. Nice question, yeah. And jumping along the 
points you made about Phelan's and Tanel's signs and their sensitivities. So uh, this came up a bunch of times when I was working with uh, other physicians, including in the PM&R clinic, but apparently the flick sign, basically when you wake up in the middle of the night and you kind of have to flick your hand in order to get some sensation back, um, is reported as having a sensitivity and specificity of 93 and 96% respectively, which seems amazingly high. And there has been some uh, studies that have called into question those numbers, but on a lot of different sources, uh, flick sign is actually one of the best tests, or the uh, most sensitive and specific tests that you can use uh, when you're seeing patients that you think might have uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. Yeah, and going along the lines that you mentioned, other things you wanted to rule out, um, as PM&R docs, we definitely understand that obtaining neuroconduction studies are pretty important. They're also pretty good at helping to define the severity of carpal tunnel syndrome, prognostication as well. And then, you know, it really helps to rule out things like double crush that could be from peripheral neuropathy, such as from diabetes. Um, it could be from cervical radiculopathy, like you mentioned. Um, and that can also help rule out thoracic outlet syndrome, too. So, yeah, lots of good points there. Moving on to number two, um, we have a 16-year-old tennis player presenting to clinic a few hours after falling on his outstretched hand during practice. He notes pain over the ulnar side of the wrist, clicking with a sense of instability with a weakened grip as well. He denies any prior symptoms to the injury. Physical exam demonstrates tenderness in the soft spot between the ulnar styloid and the flexor carpio nares tendon. Initial x-rays are negative in clinic. Which imaging modality would be the gold standard or most accurate in diagnosis? A, ultrasound, B, MRI, C, CT, or D, arthroscopy? So the first part of this question would actually be making the diagnosis. Um, in the description, it actually describes perfectly a TFCC injury. That's the triangular fibrocartilage complex injury. The TFCC is a supporting structure on the ulnar side of the wrist, connecting the carpal bones with the ulna. It's composed of an articular disc, meniscus homolog, ECU subsheath, and various ligaments around the areas also. The correct answer would be arthroscopy, which remains the most accurate way for diagnosing TFCC pathology, in addition to being therapeutic as well. While the answers of ultrasound and MRI would also be useful in a soft tissue injury, um, and they can also even produce pretty high resolution scans, both are dependent on the skill level of the operator and the interpreter or reader of the images looking at them. CT scan would not be as helpful in this injury since it's a soft tissue injury, um, and CT would be better for more bony injuries. We have a bonus question in there as well. So I described injury over the palmar side of the ECU tendon. Do you guys know um, what the name of this sign would be? Um, I think it's the ulnar phobia sign. Yep, exactly. Yes. So yep, based on the anatomical location um, that it's named for. Yeah, and interesting um, for the TFCCs, one of the most common mechanisms, like you had uh, mentioned on the question stem, it is like a fall on the outstretched hand with the wrist extended and the forearm being pronated. Uh, but it can also happen with forced ulnar deviation, like when, you're, when an athlete is swinging a bat or a racket and you have that uh, sudden um, ulnar deviated moment. And, and usually if the injury is less severe, you can try conservative management with immobilization or NSAIDs and, and kind of go from there as well. All right, 
Moving on to question three, we have, while covering a collegiate soccer game, you witness a 20-year-old male soccer player fall forward and try to brace his fall with his hands. He reports having pain in the left wrist. When you examine him on the sideline, you notice edema and tenderness at the anatomic snuff box. You send him to get x-rays, which show no evidence of bone abnormalities. Which of the following do you advise the athlete? A. Place him in a thumb spica splint and repeat x-rays in two weeks. B. Recommend rest, ice, compression, and elevation for the next three days. C. Wrap his wrist with ace bandage and prescribe NSAIDs. Or D. Prescribe NSAIDs and repeat x-rays in one week. So the correct answer here is A. Um, the diagnosis we're thinking here is a, a scaphoid fracture. Um, and scaphoid fracture, so choice A, we'll want to place him in a thumb spica splint and repeat x-rays in two weeks. Um, the sca scaphoid fracture is one of the, the most commonly fractured uh, carpal bones found in about 70% of all carpal bone fractures. The classic finding is when you have tenderness along um, and over the anatomic snuff box. And it doesn't necessarily show up on x-rays immediately. So when you get x-rays the day of, um, it will be read as negative. But it's really important that um, you repeat the x-rays in about 14 days or, or two weeks uh, because that, at that time it will show that there's a fracture there. Um, and then the other thing you want to keep in mind is these bones, because of its anatomic location of where the scaphoid is located, they're subject to um, different sequelae such as uh, osteonecrosis because of the poor blood supply there. Yeah, I definitely remember on my rotations as a medical student seeing this before. You know, it's one of the things where, you know, knowing your anatomy and different parts of the scaphoid are pretty important too. Knowing the difference between like the distal pole, the waist, or the proximal pole of the scaphoid, you know, can really help you out when you're looking at images um, for these. And for the exact same reason that you mentioned having a non-union, it's pretty important to watch out for. Moving on to the next one, we have a 19-year-old collegiate rower at the beginning of the season presenting to your office with two weeks of pain and swelling over the radial aspect of the wrist and distal forearm. She states that she's had more pain with wrist movements than thumb motions. Physical exam demonstrates swelling with tenderness over an area that was five to six centimeters proximal to the radial styloid. No tenderness on bony palpation. You performed an ultrasound in clinic and observed tendon thickening with fluid fluid-filled tendon sheets of the first and second dorsal extensor tendon compartments on the same cross-section. What's the diagnosis? A. Ganglion cyst. B. Decorvian syndrome. C. Intersection syndrome. Or D. Distal fracture of the radius. So the correct answer with this would be intersection syndrome, aka crossover syndrome or squeaker wrist. It's an overuse syndrome um, with friction and irritation occurring at the intersection of the first and second dorsal compartments. This results in a tenosynovitis and symptoms are typically more proximal than decorvian syndrome. Athletes with this issue can have uh, reports of squeaking sensation and irritation of the area. Treatment is typically conservative as you want to remove the offending activity and consider a thumb spica splint. Some of the incorrect responses were a ganglion cyst. So this would give you a 
different um, imaging finding on ultrasound as a ganglion cyst is going to be a synovial fluid filled cystic structure that arises from the synovial sheath of the joint space. Um, and then for DeCorvian syndrome, you're going to have that be incorrect because that's a tenosynovitis of the first dorsal compartment of the wrist. And so for intersection syndrome, it's going to be of the first and second. And so I'll let you go a little bit into that in the next question. So we'll get into that in a little bit. But the last incorrect answer was the distal radius fracture, a.k.a. Colley's fracture. This is going to be seen with a fractured distal bone being dorsally displaced. And it's actually one of the most common fractures of the upper extremity, typically pre uh, presenting with a fouche with wrist extended. And so this would definitely have a lower likelihood of uh, being present in this patient in the question stem just because of the mechanism injury um, and ultrasound findings present. So I got a fun anecdote for you guys. I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, sitcom Becker. It's about this MD family practitioner living in New York City. Um, but they actually uh, show uh, a quote-unquote treatment of a ganglion cyst in that episode. So uh, historically, a ganglion cyst were treated with a Bible thumping method. And no, probably not the one you're thinking of. Um, if you've ever seen that sitcom, you'd note that uh, they would say that you take the heaviest book in the house, generally that's the Bible, and you would smash it on top of the cyst. Now, it worked temporarily, but it's no longer recommended, as you can probably guess why. Um, the force applied from the book on the hand with the nerves and the tendons already being stretched out as a result of the cyst could lead to possible damage of the nerves or those tendons. For now, the recommended approach to a ganglion cyst is watchful waiting and short-term immobilization because uh, increased mo like mobilization of the wrist uh, and the hand can actually increase the size of these cysts. Um, unfortunately, no matter what you do, whether it's aspiration of the fluid or surgical resection, these cysts are really prone to recur. Mm, interesting. Bible thumping method. Remember <laughs> it. All right. The next question, and I believe the last question for this episode, we have a 17-year-old right-handed male high school tennis player who comes to your clinic with right wrist pain for the past four weeks. He has recently increased his practice regimen as well. On exam, he endorses having pain when he makes a fist around his thumb, fist around his right thumb, and you ulnar deviate the wrist. Which of the following tendons are involved in the suspected diagnosis? A, abductor pollicis longus and abductor pollicis brevis. B, extensor pollicis longus and extensor pollicis brevis, C, abductor pollicis brevis and extensor pollicis brevis, or D, abductor pollicis longus and extensor pollicis brevis. So the correct answer here is D, abductor pollicis longus and extensor pollicis brevis. Um, the test that's being described in the question stem is uh, called the Finkelstein's test, and it's positive um, with, the, with the maneuver that, that was being described where you have you ulnar deviate the wrist. And the diagnosis that's consistent with that is the Quervain's um, tenosynovitis, and it's usually seen in overuse injury in, in sports with gripped equipments like golf or racket sports. 
And it's important um, to note here that there's six different uh, compartments in, on, on the dorsal side of the wrist and nine different tendons there as well. So in the first uh, compartment, which is what the answer uh, choice um, that was given is the abductor pollicis longus and extensor pollicis brevis. Um, and one fun note uh, that one of my mentors kind of brought up and mentioned to me is how you can remember this is in that first dorsal compartment, it's all peanut lovers eat peanut butter. So APL, EPB. So you'll never forget it, hopefully. Abductor pollicis longus, extensor pollicis brevis. Uh, the other compartments, just for completion's sake, the, the second dorsal compartment is comprised of uh, the extensor carpi radialis brevis and extensor carpi radialis longus. Compartment three is composed of the extensor pollicis longus. The fourth compartment has the extensor digitorum and extensor indices. The fifth compartment has extensor digiti minimi. And then the sixth compartment on the dorsal wrist is made up of um, the extensor carpi ulnaris. Nice. And yeah, I've um, definitely been looking into different treatments for this. Um, it ranged from conservative approaches, such as just having the patient in a thumb spica splint to immobilize a thumb. Um, there's also the option for having your patients uh, use NSAIDs or a corticosteroid injection. And then options even range to more interventional um, techniques, such as surgical release of the sheath to eliminate any friction and decrease inflammation of the site. So definitely one you'll see on rotation. So yeah, thanks again, Kevin, for joining us. We really appreciate uh, sharing the enthusiasm with sports medicine. The field's definitely a, a team-oriented one, so you know, making connections, taking the time to help each other out is definitely huge. So everyone knows today, you know, in quarantine, um, it's really important to try to reach out to others, make sure everyone's doing well, um, keep learning, keep up the enthusiasm. So we really appreciate it. Yeah, th uh, thanks for having me. It's It's been an awesome time here, and I'd, I'd love to, to, to contribute and keep doing this again. It's always nice uh, talking with you and reconnecting. Glenn and I met back in medical, as medical students, so we go way back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like forever ago. And oh, I just man. butted in into the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm here. No, you're We're part of, yeah, enthusiasm. you're part of the conversation now, so... Oh gosh! <laughs> thanks, Kevin. All right. Well, everyone, again, thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, feel free to subscribe to any podcast uh, subscription services you listen to this on, whether it's going to be Apple Podcasts or um, Spotify. And we'll see you guys next time. Thank you. See you guys. Bye.